Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. I'm your host, Anthony Corcoran. Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. I'm pretty happy to have on the podcast tonight, Liam Flynn from South Australia. He's on the line. So welcome, Liam. I'm from Queensland. Thank you very much. I'm based in South Australia, <laughs> but I'm a proud Queenslander. Thank you. Good stuff. That's what we like to hear. Oh, I've been told before that the podcast is a little bit geared towards Queensland people, and I don't make any excuses for that. So. That's okay. I love being down here, and I've uh, I've coached uh, South Australian junior teams, so it's definitely got you know Adelaide is home, and I've got a soft spot for it for sure. But uh, you know, when it comes to uh, state of origin time, I'm uh, definitely on the Maroons, and I still love my Brisbane Broncos uh so yeah still a Queenslander nice yeah well the Broncos <laughs> hopefully they'll yeah, get I still a love them still love them <laughs> <laughs> they're going through a bit of a rough trouble at the moment so uh yeah. but anyway like uh, like you say uh Queenslander through and through good to hear so uh I, I guess I just I normally sort of start off and again I've been watching a fair bit of uh, the podcasts and interviews that you've been doing so big congrats you know for what you do online like your for any of the coaches who are listening your your twitter feed is is pretty awesome i reckon just in terms of the the resources and the concepts that you're putting out there at coach liam flynn so uh, i'll give that a plug because uh, yeah some really great information i just wanted to ask just to start off like where did you sort of you know how did you come about uh, developing that coaching philosophy and um, who were the main sort of influences on your coaching like as you as you you know coach today yeah well I guess firstly thanks for those uh, kind words um, <laughs> I uh, always think about my um, you know when I was a young coach that uh, I was always looking for resources and um, so you know when uh, an idea comes in my head that I think oh that's probably something that another coach is probably having the same thought or question then I you know share something on social media about it so I appreciate that it's uh helping some people um but yeah I was, I was really lucky when I was a young coach um that from pretty much when I was I started coaching when I was 13 and very soon after Warwick Cairn who was the uh state ITC coach at the time took me under his wing and um him along with uh, Rob Beveridge who was the other ITC coach at the south and um, they, you know, really taught me the, the broader concepts of the game. Uh, they taught me the fine details of play development and skill acquisition. And um, then obviously when I was at Southern Districts, I had Alan Laidwick who uh, taught me more about uh, discipline and winning and having that kind of uh, ruthless mentality. And, um, you know, Jeff Timmons, who was the um, – I was his assistant coach with the State League Spartans, who was a, a great influence on me. So – you know, from a young age, I count myself very fortunate that I had some people kind of looking up, out for me and, um, you know, showing me the right way to coach and showing me different the different parts of coaching. Yeah. How do they how do, they do that, uh, Liam? Because, like, I know uh, some people, you know, when you're young, you just want to hook in and, and get as much and as quickly as possible. But, like, it is, I guess, you know, my experience is it's probably something that does happen over time and, and you've got to have that time to for ideas to develop and, and probably figure out your own way of doing things as well. Mm, yeah, I think all of them were very generous with their time. Uh, all of them encouraged me to come out and uh, watch as much practice as I could, but also uh, especially Alan. Alan uh, pushed me forward into some coaching jobs that probably I wasn't wasn't uh, ready for or wasn't um, old enough for. I remember my <laughs> first rep team, I think I was, it was the under, under 12s and I was only 14 years old, you know, so right. I was only three, three, four years older than the kids. And same with uh, Warwick when he put me with uh, some of the, the Queensland South um, regional teams, I was only a few years older than the players. So uh, I was really fortunate like that, that they could have, um, you know, they could have said to me that I should wait my time and, uh, but they really fast tracked me and I'll be, you know, forever grateful for that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, uh, I guess one of the things I wanted to sort of 
touch on with you as well. Like I've heard you mention in a couple of interviews about what you did with your master's degree and and how you're using that in your coaching now. And I'm sort of a little bit interested in just finding out some more about, you talked about uh, using open questioning and, and how that sort of, you know, just gets better outcomes in terms of, you know, communication and conversations with the players. So could you talk a bit about that and just uh, how, how that sort of um, thinking came around? Yeah, I think as a coach, especially when you're younger, you're looking for the the best drill or the the coolest set play. And for sure, I'm still looking for those as well. <laughs> but uh, as soon as I see something, the first thought that comes to my mind is how am I going to teach that? Is that relevant to what we do? So the, um, the masters that I did with, uh, the university of Queensland, and now, um, I'm undertaking more studies now with uh, QUT, uh, in coaching as well, um, is all about the pedagogical side or the coaching and learning side of, of, of the game. And, um, a lot of it is about how we, uh, not just, um, relay information to the players because that's kind of the old-fashioned way of doing it is that yeah. I'm, I'm the coach, uh, you're the player, I give you instruction and you do that. Uh, now it's more that I am a practice designer. So I need, to pra- I need to design an environment that will allow you to discover things and for sure I will help you along the way to find some things out. But I always say to uh, our coaches at the moment, it's um, why do I need to say something if the drill can say it for me? So can I design a drill that has what we call affordances um, that, you know, invite you to do something as a player. And so whether it's a numerical disadvantage drill or, uh, you know, any drill where there's multiple defenders and I have to learn how to, you know, play in space and play in uh, under pressure, um, you know, just, just designing things that will teach the players the concepts of the game instead of me just prescribing lots and lots of information. Yeah, like the feedback that you get from players when you use that process. Do you find that, and again, this is, I'm sort of just looking for your opinion here, but do you find that some players, you know, still just sort of tend to watch the game a lot as as opposed to see what's going on in the game? Yeah, I think, I think sometimes when you try a more uh, modern method of coaching, some of them are still very much, no, no, you, you tell me what to do and I will do that. Uh, yeah. So you, you mentioned before about open questioning, especially when you start doing it a lot of them will stand there with blank faces saying why are you asking me just tell me what to do yeah um when really there's a lot of uh you know robust studies into uh the um the positivity of open questioning and how players retain information better if they're actually part of a conversation uh if they learn through the environment uh, instead of just again you know the old-fashioned way of the coach tells the player to do something and they go and do it Uh, and i think i think the players enjoy it as well that they're more there's more time on task they're more active instead of just stopping and listening to the coach all the time yeah, yeah, for sure. And and you're right. I think those um, it, it has changed. And, and I think, you know, the coaches who are getting success these days are getting that buy-in through, you know, the, that questioning approach. Um, I guess one of the things I wanted to do in this interview uh, tonight was just sort of, you know, open the door a little bit to talk about some contemporary issues and, and things that are, I guess, on the boil. We've all had, like, I guess, time to, uh, you know, sitting on the sideline, you know, earlier this year from in Queensland here, we were more or less shut down uh, from March to sort of mid-July and, and now Victoria sort of shut down again. So, so yeah, if that's all right with you, um, I just thought sure. maybe we'll give you a little bit of, uh, you know, what you're thinking on, on some of these things. So um, the first one I've got here is like the ability to, to challenge a ref's call. And I've been watching the uh, NBA playoffs with the uh, review system. That's got me a little bit interested. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, jeez. Uh, I can't say I, I bother much. Um, you know, I kind of put my attention to where it's best uh, utilized and that's generally um, things that I can control or I can help the players to control and that's our own performances so I've got to admit I don't give the referees much thought at all during games yeah fair enough so uh, next week next question I've got for you is um, at what level do you think a, a mercy rule is relevant and is it something that you know should even be considered well I see uh, I go out and watch under eights play uh, quite a bit yeah um I think I think this score is okay. I would think instead of a mercy rule, I would just 
turn the the clock off, as in yeah. turn the score off. So if it got to 20 zip, instead of stopping the game where the kids um, don't get to play anymore, I think just just turn the score off, you know, and just let them play a time limit. Um, I'd also be open to just like just trade between the teams. Yeah. You, you, you know, because really, what are we trying to win? The under eight, cha- under eight championship here. Yeah. So just anything where it gives them more time on the court instead of, okay, you're significantly better than them. Let's just stop the game 10 minutes in. You know, let's, yeah. let's give them all the time they can. But for sure, we don't want to demoralize the kids. So, um, you know, you, you're asking me something I haven't even thought about before, but they're, they're <laughs> my first thoughts that have come out after watching, um, you know, my daughter's under eight games uh, the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think too, um, as a coach, you know, myself, who's, who's been on the receiving end of some of those sort of games, you know, and, and, and maybe also, you know, on the other end too, where you've got a bit of a lead, um, there's always things you can do, isn't there? Like to um, tell the players to, to work on, you know, just the small the small wins or the small goals and, and, you know, make something of a game that could be pretty one-sided otherwise. I've got here is a good shooters are born, not developed. What's your thoughts about that? Um, well, I think that, uh, most good shooters uh, that I've been around or been fortunate enough to be around have been ones that put a lot of time into their craft. Um, there's also been a lot that have put a lot of time into their craft who haven't been good shooters, but there's been very, very few good shooters who don't put in any time. Uh, so I think, you know, time matters. Um, I don't think just block practice of just getting shots up Yep. Um, makes you necessarily a good shooter because there's so many other things that are involved in being a good shooter. So, you know, the decision of whether to shoot or not, whether you like how fast you can release the ball under pressure, how much separation you can create. So, you know, we, you do want to get a, I think there's a certain amount of reps you do need to get up to feel yeah. confident and, but it can't just be all reps. There needs to be some kind of element of dynamic environment that you get shots up in as well, or that your coach creates that environment for you. So I think it's a, it's a whole range of things. I don't think, um, uh, I don't think you're born a shooter. I think some players have better uh, rhythm and they have better, um, depth perception and they can yeah. aim better and that, but I don't think anyone, you know, is born a good shooter, never has to work on it and can just make buckets. I think there's some element of having to put in the time and, and effort. Yeah. And, and like you say, uh, block training versus, you know, more um, dynamic sort of shooting training is uh, how, how much of a sort of percentage of time, like if you were talking to say a group of uh, youth players, like how much of a percentage of time is that stuff they can do on their own versus, um, you know, stuff that needs to be coach led? Mm. Well, I think, I think it has to be both. I don't know a percentage, but I, I think that um, the coach in the in practice can do a lot more of the, more of the dynamic stuff because uh, kids on their own can do a lot of the block block practice. Um, if they have a mate, they could probably do a little bit of the dynamic stuff, but yep. it's probably far easier for a coach to create a dynamic environment in practice and then encourage the players to do the block stuff, uh, block practice outside of training hours. Um, you know, I just know that from the players I've worked with that they do a lot of, um, shooting reps, uh, on their own, uh, with their, with, with one other player after practice, before practice. But as soon as the coaches get on the floor, I would say most of it, there's some kind of element of decision-making and a dynamic element with simulated defense or, um, some kind of, this is the scenario you need to read this and then find a way to get a shot off from this scenario. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, next totally random question. Um, a foul is only a foul if it gets called. So, say, for example, moving screens. Well, well we were having this discussion the other week. Uh, I, I think uh, move as much as you like. Um, we actually te- – uh, the, the thing about the screening, spe- specifically in pick and roll play, is the timing and the chemistry between the pick and roll creator and the screener. Yeah. And that a lot of moving screeners because they don't get the timing and the chemistry right. So as coaches, we need to do as much as we can with drills with both of the players involved – not one of them, so one on O with the screener or one on O with the creator, because they never actually create that 
that chemistry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So more two on O, two on simulated defense, two on two, three on O, uh, sorry, three on simulated defense. So we do a lot of that. Uh, but with our screeners, we have them sprinting in. We have them stride stopping at the last second. We have them flipping angles at the last second. Yeah. And we, we just don't care if they get two or three moving screens a game because the other 70 screens they've set a game have been moving and haven't been called. So I would say just work on the chemistry, um, stride stop finishes. Don't try and jump stop because it's just – it's so obvious the screen is being set and high-level yeah. defences see it coming and – cover it better and lots of flipping. And if you get an occasional moving screen called, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. Have you got any um, sort of contemporary thoughts on uh, like for the screener, like how we, how, how that person rolls out of the screen? Is it like sort of, you know, back to the, back to the, back to the player or sort of more of that sort of slip action, you know, going to the hole? Yeah. It depends on what the coverage is. So, and what kind of roller they are. So with pressure coverages, so hard hedges and blitzes, we don't want them to hold the screen because it just keeps the pressure in the pick and roll. So if they are a deep roller, it's a lot of sprint in and just forward pivot and touch and go and deep roll to the basket. If they're a short roller, then they would touch and go, but they would reverse pivot and kind of slide into space. So the pivoting is really dependent on what the coverage is and what kind of roller they are. Um, If it's more of a containment coverage, then we want them to hit and hold. And then more often than not, it's going to be a forward pivot and try and get into a gap uh, in behind their defender. So it's not a a simple answer. We we definitely um, teach the players about what the the coverage is and this is how you're going to screen depending on that coverage. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, so how do you win the last five minutes of a game? Uh, you're really asking the tough ones tonight. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is one that I, I think every season I ask myself, how do we win the, the last five minutes of the game? You know, like they're always close. Um, often, you know, there's been 10, 15 lead changes and, you know, like uh, what's it going to take to get it done in the last five minutes? You know, like considering, say, everything's sort of much, Mostly even, you know, timeouts are much the same, you know, fouls are much the same. Well, I think it's how, how often are you practicing those scenarios? Um, so uh, how often are you putting, you know, two minutes on the clock and one team's leading, one team's down? Yeah. Or after your scrimmage, you can just play a normal scrimmage and then regardless of who wins, who loses, the teams, the game finishes, the teams go to a coach Yep. One coach draws up a play, the other coach has to defend it, and then you come straight back on the on the uh, court, nil all, and you play that one possession. That's another way of just playing those end game possessions. Yeah. Um, so I think that's some of it. I think it's also what kind of environment have you created where players uh, don't feel tension and anxiety in the last five minutes because they're not reliant on you. They're just uh, they know the concepts of the game. They practice in environments that have um, simulated that game-like stress. So when they get to a game, they're like, oh, this is just like every Thursday practice where we are practicing so hard and so intensely and I'm not looking over at the coach of what to do. I know what to do. Um, You know, that's an element as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So next next random question. Um, So... And again, some of these questions I've got just from uh, listening to, to you on a few interviews. So I'm, uh, you know, tapping into a bit of what you've already um, talked about recently, uh, previously. But so I guess talking about offense, particularly like concepts like spacing and, and creating advantage and tempo, how do you sort of find those concepts are best taught? Uh, we talk to our players first about what a good offensive possession looks like. Yeah. And it's the same on defense. What does a good possession look like? And then once it's clear and we all know what it, what it is, then it's easy for us. Uh, it's easier for us to coach. So um, for us, a good offensive possession looks like this. It, we space the floor, we create an advantage and we shoot. Yeah. Now, um, how we space the floor is in what our alignment is. Um, what a method of, of creating advantage is. It might be we use a pick and roll or we might just use pace. We might run really fast and create a numerical advantage. But yep. we use some kind of method, we create an advantage, and then we shoot. And if we do that, we're going to win more games um, than not because most possessions are going to be 
uh, a good shot or an easy shot. Um, so that's kind of how we define it is that three part spacing advantage shot. Um, and you know, with the, when we start with a team, we'll, um, we'll put them in drills where they'll discover what an advantage looks like. So one of the advantages that we, we call an OBD an off balance defender. So we'll do some numerical disadvantage or advantage games where the defenders are trying to scramble and like four on three and the offense will see a lot of defenders flying at them off balance. So they will learn to drive those players drive to the basket and lay the ball up. So, you know, it's defining what an advantage is putting them in an environment where they'll see a lot and then they'll get to learn how to make decisions about whether they take an advantage or they extend an advantage. So, you know, make an extra pass to someone who's more open. Yep. Yep. Cool. So transition three, you a fan or does it depend on the situation? I think it depends on the player. Uh, if they can, um, you know, if you've got a, uh, an elite shooter who can make that three in transition, uh, I'm, fine with it i think there's for sure some moments where they may need to think you know as, give it a second thought about whether it's the appropriate shot but if it's someone who can make it i'm okay otherwise i think most times we'd prefer to have a paint touch um and a paint kick out three yeah um, but you know if i had for instance patty mills running a lane and we kick ahead pass to him and he's wide open and it's the right moment of the game for sure. Like, I think that's a great shot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the best basketball is, is positionless or do you think there's still a role for bigs in the low post? Oh, I love like having bigs and size. Uh, I miss post play. I miss good post play. Yeah. Um, I don't miss players catching the ball, uh, two big steps off the block and taking eight dribbles into a post move. But for sure, I miss um, high-level post offense. Uh, I don't think the post-up is dead, especially in international basketball. We still post a lot. Yeah. Um, but we, we invert. We, we post guards a lot. We put playmakers in the low post and run actions off it. So I would say that the low post is really dead in the NBA. There's not a lot of playmaking or posting up but in international basketball, there is still a lot. Uh, but I would say most times when you get a post touch, it's for someone to get a catch and finish or one dribble and finish. There's not a lot of let's get in the low block and let's give me a shot fake and then you're two dribble pound and you're up and under. There's not a lot of that. Yeah. Um, it's a lot more about efficiency or playmaking. Yeah, that's good. Um, do you think there's uh, more opportunities for creativity and innovation in the game these days than, say, what there has been previously? And do you think it's a bit of a case of uh, what was, what was you know, what worked when it was uh, old is coming back as something that still works when it's you know, as something that's sort of new in, in inverted commas? Um, I don't know if this answers the question, but I think the game is really creative, like mm. super creative at the moment. Um, you you see a lot of uh, because of the the talents of the players and the skill levels of the players that you're able to do so many more things. So, for instance, 20 years ago, the prime playmaker was the point guard, and now essentially you have five playmakers on the floor. So you can do so many more different, sophisticated uh, offenses or actions. And that not only can you have five different players making plays, it also means that all the players have to learn how to both make plays and create space for that playmaker. So that gives a different element as well. It's not just one playmaker and four people just getting out the road or creating space. It's now everyone has to do both. And so I think it's a really creative game at the moment. Um, And it's creative regionally as well. So, you know, watching NBA is different to watching EuroLeague. And even in Europe, Europe alone, like Spain plays differently to Germany who play differently to Greece and Israel. So you see those regional differences as well, different creativities. Uh, So I I think the game's at an awesome, uh, awesome spot at the moment. Yeah. What what would be some of the things that you've seen recently where you've sort of see people who are innovating and just, you know, just coming up with some really left field type ideas? Um, Well, I think in 
in Europe, it was a lot of the more low budget teams that have to uh, compete with the top budget teams that you'll see some creativity. So in Euroleague, that was Algiris last year. Um, Coach Yasakavisic, his, you know, his offensive schemes uh, were very creative because they just didn't have the budgets of FC Barcelona, Real Madrid. And yeah. funnily enough, now he's coaching at uh, FC Barcelona. So now he has got the top players and I've seen some of their games already and the creativity when you have the best players as well is even, even more. So. The roof. Yeah. Um, you know, so I see a lot of creativity uh, in those lower budget teams too. And even defensively. So there was a team in Germany, uh, Vector, who were a low-budget team. So the way they played defensively was um, a lot of um, you know, random trapping in the pick and roll. It was a lot of like next defense where you bring a defender from outside of the pick and roll onto the ball. They played really creative uh, defensive schemes. So I think those, I think the best way for any coach to do is is look at the look at the ladder in each country, and if you know the budgets or you know the small clubs, if there's a small club that's punching above their weight so in australia that was cans for many years yeah, yeah. do better than their budget um that's a team to watch and i think new zealand were super creative in the nbl this year so i really enjoyed watching them mm. was there stuff in particular that you particularly liked or um was it just a combination of things um, I thought the entries were really creative. So when we talk about like constructing offenses, it's kind of the entries. So the way you get into things, yeah. there's the actions, which is the prime method of advantage you're going to use. So whether it's a wide pin down for a shooter or a pick and roll, uh, you know, for your creator and then uh, the play after the play. So I saw a lot of super creative entries, a lot of things that basically moved the defense around, got them really off balance and masked what the key action was. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're into the key action for the, you know, the creator that they were trying to uh, get the ball in his hands the whole time. And you didn't see it coming. It came out of all this different action yeah. and then it flowed into play after the play. So players being able to make decisions and read, do I have an advantage? Do I move the ball on? Um, that was, you know, really high level. You see those really high level decision makers in that play after the play stuff. Yeah, good stuff. As a coach, um, when do you know it's time to change your thinking about your offensive strategy? Uh, I kind of think that as a coach, you need to have a style of play you believe in. Uh, we actually had this conversation with the, I do some work with the basketball SA down here with their high performance coaches and yeah. about creating their own style of play. And I think it's important that every coach has, and most have, have developed a style of play or a style of uh, a system of play um, for many years, seeing things, doing things. I like this. I don't like that. That's worked for me but we all have something that we do. So I think that's important. I think it's important also to tweak and modernize it over the journey. Yeah. Um, and also to, when you get a new influx of players to review your system and say, how can I maximize the talents of my players uh, by doing a little bit more of this in, within my system and a little bit less of that. But there's, I think it's folly to think that as a coach, you get a new set of players and you go, oh, I'll just come up with a new system of play. I just think that's not realistic. It's not how it happens at the highest levels that yeah. coaches need to have a system they have and believe in, that they know how to teach it. They know how to progress it during the season. Um, and they also know what they can see ahead for what happens, what the defenses are probably going to start doing and then what are the counters. So I, I think that's really important. Uh, but as I said, I think it's important to also modernize it. So add more pick and roll play. Uh, so for instance, if you are a coach that always use flex, yep. um, maybe you don't just run continuity offense side to side the whole time. Maybe it's just one side of flex and then it flows into some pick and roll action. Yeah, uh, to modernise the the offence. Yep, yep. Is there, there a time when uh, you stuck with something that you thought was, um, you know, the bread and butter, but maybe thought afterwards, oh, I probably should have changed that up? Oh, for sure, all the time. <laughs> all the time. I thought that in my under-14 game the other week. I thought, geez, that was rubbish of me to suggest that. The kids didn't even know what I was talking about. So, no, plenty of times, plenty of times. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, it's one of those things that in hindsight's great until after it happens and then you think, oh, I probably should have maybe had a look at that a different way. I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about too, Liam, uh, is um, just talking about the business of basketball and, and I guess, um, you know, look, looking at what you do, um, you know, obviously pretty successful overseas and also locally as well. And and I'm sort of thinking that um, there's a bit of an element of risk versus reward, you know, like in terms of chasing, you know, that, that sort of internet, like in, in your experience, you know, chasing a, an international coaching gig, but also, you know, having the opportunity to have a lifestyle and, and you know, like a, a job as a coach what are the the challenges you think of of doing that for coaches in in particularly in australia because i think we're probably a little bit different to say the states or or uh, even europe for that matter yeah i guess i i'm lucky and i have been lucky and i know you know a lot of people say about like i genuinely have been very fortunate and have had a lot of luck along the way uh, I also feel fortunate that I've had a job outside of basketball prior to, so yeah. I know how lucky I am. Um, but I think that um, I think back to when I had a normal day job. That although I had a day job and I was doing university studies, that in my mind I was a basketball coach. So I wanted a full time basketball job. So I had a full time attitude about. Uh, being a basketball coach. So, um, you know, I would clock my nine to five, but I'd be thinking about basketball the full, t- you know, the whole time. Um, and I just got lucky that uh, a player that I was doing individuals with became a GM for an NBL club a couple of years later and remembered the free individuals I did essentially. So that's how I got my first break and, um, you know, caught another break going to Europe where I spammed 200 clubs in Europe because I had been fired from my NBL job and I wanted to keep coaching. So um, was lucky to get my first chance and get a foot in the door in Germany. And, um, you know, you, you, you're lucky where you get to uh, work with great people. And if you focus on the job you're in, then the job that, you know, is next takes care of itself. So, Mm. um, but I think that that mentality of if you want to be a a full-time coach, you need a full-time attitude. I think that's um, one thing that I've had along the way, even though I haven't always had a full-time basketball job or right now, like I'm between jobs right now, but I still have a a full-time attitude that this is my career. Um, I'm a, at the moment I'm a consultant and I do my uh, work for, overseas teams and my junior camps and that, but I am, you know, that's, that's my career and that's my passion. So I don't think that, you know, anytime I don't have a basketball job that I start thinking about, I should go and go back to do marketing or corporate sales. Like I never think that I'm a, I'm a full-time coach. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. I guess one of the things you, you said there that interested me a little bit was, you know, breaking into that European coaching scene and what are some of the challenges associated with that? I mean, I know um, players uh, certainly, you know, like who have been playing in the NBL are looking at Europe as well as a still a pretty viable sort of destination to play. Like what's it like for a coach? I would say it's even harder um, because there are so many great, European coaches who are out of work. So there's mm. a huge supply over there an abundance of supply. And I was just fortunate that we had been given a severance package from our NBL team and I didn't need to be paid a whole lot of money. And I'd already had a job in New Zealand ready for me for the next season. So I was only yep. looking for a five month gig. And so uh, a second division club in Germany, um, brought me over for not a lot of money at all, but I didn't need the money and I went for the experience. So it's, it's really difficult to break in. You do need to be prepared to, you need to have some finances behind you to get in. Um, but once you're in, if you do a good job, um, you know, you can really get a, a great career out of it. Um, it is challenging because a lot of times, especially back then, they didn't actually recognize Australian basketball or the basketball we have over here. But I think that's probably less of a concern now. I think the NBL's, you know, really high level competition and our national team programs are really well respected. So I think there are so many coaches in Australia who would be outstanding coaches in Europe and it's just uh, finding a, a club that will give them the opportunity or a coach that will give them the opportunity. I think they would be fantastic. 
Yeah, yeah, and is there? I guess you know, just talking generally, is there some places that are better than others? You know, for someone who's been over there. Yeah, I think that like Germany uh, is a market that's been open to foreign coaches for some quite some time. Israel, where I just was uh, last season, same again. Um, you know, and then some of the smaller countries. Um, you know, Finland, England. Uh, they've they've had a lot of foreign coaches, um, so I think that's they're the the markets you start in. You go into one of those markets, and probably like myself, you're going to have to go to second division and yeah. work your way up. So I started as an assistant coach in second division, and so that's where I was seven years ago, and just got lucky that um, you know we won the championship the second year, and yeah. uh, relationships with the the first coach that I had got me with a coach five years down the track and then he took me to China. So it's all about those relationships as well that you build along the way. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that Chinese um, experience that you had. Like what did you do over there? Cause I haven't been able to find anything on that. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't there very, it wasn't very long. It wasn't uh, my favorite coaching stop, but I got to say I learned a, a great deal and I got to work with, uh, you know, a close friend of mine, coach Dirk Bauman from Germany. And uh, you know, I loved working for him. He's one of the, uh, most knowledgeable coaches I ever worked with, uh, especially he's the one of the first coaches to um, work with the, the mid pick and roll. He, he was the national team coach with Dirk Nowitzki back in the day. Right. Um, so I learned so much from him and I was fortunate enough to uh, go see another part of the world. And my kids came over and saw that part of the world and we ate great food. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was happy to then be back in Europe this season. That was, you know, much more where I prefer to be. Yeah, and do you think the um, the current COVID sort of stuff is is this going to put a halt to some of that travel, like for you in particular, but for sure. for players as well? Uh, I, well, it has for me for sure. Um, I think uh, the European competitions are doing as best they can with um, trying to create bubbles and being, um, you know minimize the impact of COVID. I'd be interested to see how um, the Euro League, the Euro Cup, the Champions League uh, work where there's different countries have different rules for COVID. Yeah. Um, so that would be interesting. But I think everyone's starting to understand it's the new normal and that um, sport can be played um, somewhat with safe, you know, within safety guidelines. So I think that's what yeah. everyone's uh, starting to gear up for overseas. But I think it would definitely, you know, it's affected me. It will affect other players that probably thought, hey, I'm going to dip my toe, play in the Australian League, then zip over to Europe, play over there. And I think that's going to be really, really difficult. Yeah, yeah. Do you still, um, I guess you'd still be keen to, to coach in the NBL or WNBL at some stage? Yeah, I think... Um, I've got a lot of respect for the league and the coaches. I think they're you know, super high level. Uh, enjoy watching the NBL when I come back. I, I don't get to watch it at all when I'm overseas because I'm engrossed in my own league. But uh, when I came back, I was really impressed with how the league's developed in style of play, um, tactical you know, proficiency of the coaches. I think it's really high level. So uh, if the right opportunity came up for sure, I'd have a look at it. Um, but I'm also... You know, I love coaching in Europe as well. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens after all this COVID misses uh, done and dusted. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, it's uh, there's an end to it somewhere down the line. I guess one of the things happening, you know, at the moment too is just um, junior rep teams getting ready uh, to play. And, and I know you spend a fair bit of time as a junior rep team, you coach yourself, but also you know delivering um, programs to to junior associations, but also you know at the state level as well. So, what sort of what are some of the sort of key planning? type things that you'd be thinking about in turn, like I guess if you were providing a bit of advice to a junior rep coach um, just about ready to start the season so they're just about ready to pick their team and then they've got a little bit of pre-season and then they get into the game so uh, what sort of advice would you be giving them you know, this time mm. of the year? Yeah, the the main advice I, I start with the clubs is just articulating a style of play that you know, if someone walked in the door on a Friday night and watched your teams play, that they could articulate what your club's about. Yep. And, um, you know, I think that's important because once you have a, a philosophy or a style of play, then the coaches can coach to that style of play. Um, now, it helps if you then support that with documentation and terminology. So, for instance, all the coaches 
talking the same language and that helps the players. Yeah. Uh, so as they move up through the ages, um, the, the position on the court that you would call home or split line or is called the same thing for every age group. So they're not having to relearn terminology and teaching. So yeah. I always, you know, that's my first port of call with clubs is to just get organized and provide resources for coaches. And then the coaches, once they have that can then start again, think about how they want their team to play and then working back from how many sessions do I have? What are the broad concepts that I want to teach in early? And then how will I uh, create environments that, um, teach those concepts. So whether it's spacing or advantage or individual defense, whatever it is. So just those key components of the game, um, you know, how many sessions do I have to get it in and then, you know, work back how I want to teach transition defense. I have 10 sessions. How am I going to design practice that gets across the key elements of my transition defense philosophy? Yeah. Do you, do you sort of work with like a uh, master plan for the season and then to sort of, you know, tick those things off as you work through them um, in the preseason? And then, you know, once games start, obviously uh, you might be either reinforcing some of the stuff that you did in the preseason or, or just, you know, touching on it again week by week. Yeah, I think you need to have a, uh, I have a curriculum document. So this is the document that, um, you know, if the Chicago Bulls call tomorrow and say you're interviewing for the, the, the head coaching job, then I can show documentation and video that this is the style of play I would like to play. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, when you actually get to a season, then that style of play then starts having dates and numbers of sessions and you start thinking about, okay, I want to play this way. The game is broken down to these components. I now have a, uh, a schedule and yes, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, on the first training, I'm going to have these elements covered. I'm in the second training and have these elements covered. But of course you have some flexibility in that, that if you can accelerate the team, uh, you do that. If you need to slow down and be more methodical in your approach, you can do that as well. So you're not, uh, it's not set in stone, but it's definitely a great um, way of giving you some guidance to getting to the end point, which is that, you know, that championship at state championships. Yeah, yeah, cool. Do you find it uh, difficult to sort of switch between, uh, I heard you mention before your kids are pretty young and they're, and they're playing, but, you know, switching between the sort of participation level program and the and the rep stuff and, and sort of, um, you know, just thinking, hey, this is, needs to be about fun and, and encouragement versus, you know, let's get after it and get a result. Yeah, sometimes. For sure it's hard. <laughs> it is difficult. Uh, some things... Uh, strangely the same so the broad concepts of the game like spacing advantage shot that's the same terminology we would use with pro players as we would under 12s so there are some things that are really consistent um, but there are other things for sure like the capabilities of the players the um, their ability to read situations and make decisions in the moment are so much different that you do need to uh, adjust your thinking uh, when you're coaching an under 14 boys group, <laughs> like I found out the other night. Um, but you know, that's, that's the fun of coaching. Um, I, you know, I, I still enjoy going out and coaching junior kids and I really, really enjoyed coaching pro players for so many years as well. So uh, that's the, the beauty of our game. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Uh, I, I wanted to ask also just a little bit about the your, um, the CLF showcase. I know that's coming up soon. Um, how did that come about? And, you know, like you've been doing it a few years now. So um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I guess we just had a lot of um, really talented players in Adelaide and South Australia, and we wanted to make it easy for them to be seen by uh, programs internationally and a lot of the time it's really difficult financially for players to get overseas and be seen or get their film seen by the right program. So we just decided to do a showcase and film it. And it was really well received last year. Um, we had a bunch of uh, players, um, you know, we were, it was like a, a sliding scale. We were either the sole reason why they got their scholarship or a small piece of it, you know? Oh, okay. So we had a bunch of kids along that spectrum. Um, and we also just gave a really good play development experience. I thought we had outstanding coaches that delivered a great product. So we'll do the same thing again this year where we'll have another uh, 48 athletes come along. All right. um, so they do a, 
a three-hour practice on the Saturday, which uh, closely resembles what a pro practice would be. And then on the Sunday, it's all game plays and it's all filmed in um, HD. And then we send it over to uh, programs overseas and we hope that we can give them a a really cost-effective alternative to being seen and scouted uh, than having to pay, you know, thousands of dollars to try and travel, which is yeah. also very difficult now, or having to pay lots and lots of money for expensive scouting services. So, um, you know, we, we hope that it helps the kids. Mm. Is that um, sort of linking with the AAU type stuff or is it um, just, I guess, a different option? Yeah, different option, different yeah. option. So, um, yeah, they pay $170 and they get two days of coaching and then they get their films sent out um, to a bunch of colleges four times a year. And oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we feel like we're a cost-effective way of um, for kids in our, our state. Yeah. Uh, we've had some Queensland kids come down last year who were really impressive and uh, we're fortunate they you know they trusted us to come down and, and give it a go so we think that in the future we'll have uh, once the borders are um, you know it's easy to travel we'll have more yeah. and more state kids come back to the showcase yeah good stuff so when is that coming up Liam that's October you said yeah October October okay. 3rd and 4th oh cool okay and all the info for that just be on your website yeah, so the, it's already the the nominations have closed. We've selected our athletes. Um, so, yeah, that's coming up on the 3rd and 4th. And then at the moment um, we've got uh, clubs and colleges now just signing up so that they can be the first to receive the information for the kids. Oh, nice. So what's the um, – I went to a uh, – just tell you a little story. I went over the States in 2015 and managed to spend a little bit of time with um, John Rilly and Marty Clark um, in San Francisco um, – and we went to a, um, a high school tournament and, uh, you know, a lot of grade, maybe grade 10 teams playing, probably not so much grade 11 and 12s in that group. But I was amazed and sort of blown away at how early some of those kids were getting recruited, you know, by mm. fairly high-level coaches. Um, and it's quite an eye-opener, actually, like, you know, when they sort of talk about a grade 8 kid and, and the, that sort of pathway that, that they're already sort of uh, projecting for, for that sort of athlete. Um, did you find that that's uh, like Australia maybe we're a little bit behind in that, in that regard in terms of that early development or you think mm. we do that yeah. as well? It's like in Europe, it's, it's uh, really, you, you can have kids recruited as uh, from the U16s um, European Championship. So they could be 14 and 15 years old. Um, so you'll go to the U16s and you'll see um, there'll be a kid playing for Spain that's probably, um, you know, playing for Real Madrid or FC Barcelona and he's already on a professional contract at 14 mm. years old. You know, yeah. there'll, be, there'll be a kid, um, you know, playing for France who's, um, actually being signed for um, a team in Russia. And, you know, he's got a professional, you know, club uh, already, you know, he's under contract already. So it starts really young in Europe. Um, they There's less of the kids from Europe going to the college system. Um, but the good thing about that is that um, when kids progress from one club to the next, that the club that they're at receives a fee for that. So they get oh, okay. money given to them for developing that player. Yeah. So that would be interesting if Australia ever got to that position where, um, you know, players were developed, players were under contract, they still went to school. Um, but, you know, when a professional club said, oh, we really like that player where we're going to give money to your junior club as a thank you for, you know, as payment for all the, the great work that they did developing you. Yeah. And then that money could be reinvested back into the junior club. So that would be the European model. And it's, it's interesting. It's not for everyone, but um, I think it's just a, a great way of rewarding those clubs that do a yeah. really great job of, um, you know, developing high-end talent that they yeah. get. Um, rewarded for that and then as I said they reinvest it and most of the time that money goes into facilities or it goes into more full-time coaches yep yep so you're talking about sort of I guess in the Australian equivalent we'll be talking about players who are younger than say development players for an NBL mm. team yeah yeah sort of sort of more like under 18 under 20 yeah, type under, 16, under 18 under 20 yep. so yeah again that's the European model but at the same time um you know, I can see that um, our model, um, you know, we've, we've been able to create 
amazing players coming out of the Australian system through the high performance pathway and then the center of excellence and then the college system or straight into the NBL. So I think that's a, um, you know, that's been a, a bona fide pathway as well. Uh, it's just different countries, different regions mm. have different ways of doing it. Yep. Um, but yeah, Australia for sure develops uh, high end talent uh, for the population size we have and that, 90% of our coaches are all volunteers. It's amazing um, what Australian coaches do. So I, I, I have that conversation with my mates over in Europe all the time um, that yeah, so many of our coaches are a plumber during the day or an accountant like yourself <laughs> or something, yeah. you know, but at night they coach and they're able to, you know, coach at a, a really high level. So I think that's a great way as well. Yeah, yeah. It's um, certainly like it's it's really, you know, there's a lot of numbers there, people who are volunteer and, um, you know, I think uh, probably, you know, uh, there's a lot of parents who get involved as well. So it's all about getting uh, them started on the right foot um, in terms of their basketball knowledge and then, um, you know, making it enjoyable for them so they hang around. Yeah, good stuff. So uh, what's next on the horizon for you? Liam, um, anything you were saying earlier, um, probably just a case of just waiting out the COVID thing or in terms of overseas stuff or? Yeah. So at the moment I've, uh, I'll be doing consulting work, uh, for, uh, federations. So like national federations and oh, yeah. some, uh, overseas clubs and colleges and, uh, staying close to home. Uh, we'll see if something, you know, really interesting comes up. I'll for sure look at that. Um, but at the moment, it's been a bit of a silver lining to be back in Adelaide and spending time with my kids and partner, which has been great. Uh, but for sure, I'm still doing a lot of work in coaching and um, will continue to do so. And hopefully, I'll be back with the team, um, one team and full time with the team. But yeah. until then, I'll, uh, yeah, I've been fortunate to um, get the opportunity to consult with a whole bunch of teams. So I'll do that in the meantime. Yeah, good stuff. Well, I uh, wish you luck with all that, mate. And um, once again, yeah, thanks, thanks heaps for the content that you put out on on uh, Twitter, especially. But um, I know I certainly uh, keep an eye out for your tweets, and because there's, you know, the thing that I really like is that you've always got a video clip there. Um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, just breaks it down immediately and, you know, you can get the concept straight away. So um, I really appreciate that. I think it's really great. And um, I just know the time and effort that goes into cutting up clips. So uh, it's really good stuff. Oh, thank you for those kind words. And thank you for uh, putting on this program as well and sharing, um, you know, the different conversations you've had with some coaches. It's been really entertaining to listen to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, ten and a half thousand uh, listens so far on the podcast, right. just right. under twelve months. So, um, my my list of coaches seems to get longer and longer, and the, the time available gets shorter and shorter. So, <laughs> I, I've got to uh, pull my finger out and get a few done. So, uh, no, but like I said, it's uh, it's been great to catch up with you. Just for people's information, I think uh, Lee and my first touch base probably about six months ago and um, yeah, not everything sort of comes to fruition sooner or later. So uh, I'm glad we were able to, to hook up. Great. Yeah. Thanks again, Liam and uh, all the best mate. Hopefully um, an opportunity uh, comes up for you soon and you're back on the court doing your thing. Great. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks mate. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get in touch with me through my email at australianbasketballcoach at gmail.com. That's australianbasketballcoach, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Also follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Coach and also on Facebook with Australian Basketball Coach. So uh, looking forward to hearing from you and thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.